Let's turn together, please, to Psalm 49. I told you last week, as we started Genesis 48, that Genesis 48 and 49 really form one unit, but it's broken up into two parts. Genesis 48 is God's way of showing that He overcomes evil. Not only our own evil, but the evil effects of other people's sin. And in particular, in Genesis 48, we learned that God takes tragedy and turns it into beautiful triumph. God takes sorrow and affliction and brings about His grace. Jacob, in Genesis 48, meets with his son Joseph, with whom he is reunited after many years of bitter disappointment and separation familial discord and sin and treachery. And through Jacob's own words, he blesses his son, showing that God overcomes evil. And in this section, we learn some important principles about who our God is and what He does on our behalf. Just for the sake of review, God Almighty, we learned, never allows evil to have the final word. I prayed just a moment ago these basic thoughts. God Almighty never allows evil to have the final word. If God were not mighty, there was no reason for us to trust Him that He could do anything. If God were mighty and not good, we might be in fear of Him, but we don't know if we could trust Him. But God Almighty, who is also all good, is worthy of our trust, even whenever the world seems to be falling down around us, and we can trust Him that evil will never have the final word. Secondly, we learn that God Almighty's sovereign choices are always designed to highlight His freedom and grace. Surprisingly, in Genesis 48, Jacob gives a prophecy that the younger son of Joseph will be the one who will have the preeminence. This is an interesting theme that shows up not only throughout the book of Genesis, but throughout the Bible, that God does things that surprise us because He's totally free. And in demonstrating His freedom and exercising His freedom, He highlights His grace consistently. And thirdly, we learned in Genesis 48 that God Almighty will fulfill all of His promises to His people. And in particular, we learned at the end of Genesis 48 that he wants to go back and be buried in the land, in the land of promise. And he makes his son Joseph swear that he will take him back there. And in doing so, he makes it very clear that this is the land to which they will return. This is the place where they will spend their time. And he promises Joseph that they will go back there one day. So Jacob is not only giving promises to his children, he's He's demonstrating to them that he will keep his promises for forever. God will do that. So Jacob's words are words of blessing, and Jacob's words are words of prophecy. And that brings us to where we are in our text today in Genesis 49. Now, as you read together today, I want you to look for two things. There are two major things that come out of Genesis 49 this second installment of this section within Moses' writings. Moses wrote for the people of Israel, wanting to teach them very important things. 
And there are two major things that he wants to teach them in Genesis 49. The first is that sin has deep and lasting consequences. But the second thing, and the thing against which the, uh, the darkness of sin seems dark and the brightness of grace shines the brighter, is that God overcomes sin by His grace. So first, keep in mind as we read that sin brings deep and lasting consequences, but also, and more importantly, highlighted against the darkness in the chapter is the promise that God's grace overcomes sin and its consequences. Let's read together today. This is the word of the Lord. Then Jacob called his sons and said, gather yourselves together that I may tell you what shall happen to you in days to come. So again, not just words of blessing, but prophetic words. Assemble and listen, O sons of Jacob. Listen to Israel, your father. Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might, and the firstfruits of my strength, preeminent in dignity and preeminent in power, unstable as water, you shall not have preeminence. Because you went up to your father's bed, then you defiled it. He went up to my couch. Simeon and Levi are brothers, weapons of violence are their swords. Let my soul come not into their counsel, O my glory, be not joined to their company. For in their anger they killed men, in their willfulness they hamstrung oxen. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down, he crouched as a lion, and as a lioness, who dares rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples, binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine." He has washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine and his teeth whiter than milk. Zebulun shall dwell at the shore of the sea. He shall become a haven for ships and his border shall be at Sidon. Issachar is a strong donkey. Crouching between the sheepfolds, he saw that a resting place was good and that the land was pleasant. So he bowed his shoulder to bear and became a servant at forced labor. Dan shall judge his people as one of the tribes of Israel. Dan shall be a serpent in the way, a viper by the path that bites the horse's heels so that his rider falls backward. I wait for your salvation, O Lord. Raiders shall raid Gad, but he shall raid at their heels. Asher's food shall be rich, and he shall yield royal delicacies. Naphtali is a doe let loose that bears beautiful fawns. Joseph is a fruitful bough, a fruitful bough by a spring, his branches run over the wall. The archers bitterly attacked him, shot at him, and harassed him severely. Yet his bow remained unmoved, his arms were made agile by the hands of the mighty one of Jacob. From there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel. By the God of your Father, who will help you, by the Almighty, who will bless you with blessings of heaven above, blessings of the deep that crouches beneath, blessings of the breasts and of the womb, The blessings of your Father are mighty beyond the blessings of my parents up to the bounties of the everlasting hills. 
May they be on the head of Joseph and on the brow of him who was set apart from his brothers. Benjamin is a ravenous wolf in the morning, devouring the prey, and at evening, dividing the spoil. May God bless to us the reading of his word. So as Jacob comes into the land of Egypt in chapter 47, he knows that this will not be his final home. As we said, he makes his son's promise that he will be buried back in the land of promise. We see that at the end of chapter 47. In chapter 48, as we learned last week, he gives promises to his son Joseph. And now in Genesis 49, he gives promises to his other sons, and Joseph once again included. Some of these promises are good. Some of them don't sound so good. Jacob speaks words of blessings. Jacob speaks words at least of warning, if not mild cursing. Moses wrote these things down to teach his people who they were and who their God was. In many ways, simply, that's what the Bible does every time we read it. Anytime we listen to a sermon, anytime we study on our own, go to a small group, there are two basic things that should be coming out each time, two things to look for. The first is, why are we like we are? The Bible clarifies for us who we are and why we are like we are. The Bible also clarifies for us that there is hope because we have a great God and a gracious God who can change us. And in Genesis 48, we find these two basic themes. There's an explanation of who we are and why we are like we are but a promise that there is a God who can overcome all of our sin and sin's consequences. Israel needed to know that. Why were they in captivity in Egypt? Because of sin. Why did they suffer so bitterly? Because of sin. Why, when they left the land of Egypt, under the powerful hand of God, led by grace. Why did they rebel? Because of sin. Why were they so prideful? Why were they faithless? Why were they lustful? Because of sin. And sin is deep and dark, and sin brings drastic, dreadful consequences. Moses wanted his people to know that, to warn them, and to help them interpret who they were. But highlighted against the backdrop of human sinfulness, of our own sin, is the promise that there is hope because God's grace overcomes. And the first thing that we see in our text today is that sin brings deep and lasting consequences. We do not have time to go through all 12 sons and talk about each blessing or each prophecy against them. In fact, I don't even think that's the major point of the text. The major point of the text is to highlight a few of the sons. Now, as Moses wrote these things down and read them out loud to the company of Israel, each tribe would have wanted to know something about themselves. And because these are not just words of blessing or cursing, but somewhat prophetic, 
they would have been able to understand themselves, their tribe, their people group. But there are a few sons here that are highlighted. And that's not surprising because the sons that are highlighted in Genesis 49 have had their stories highlighted throughout the pages of Genesis. So we'll pay attention mostly to the ones that are highlighted. This first point, that sin brings deep and lasting consequences, is highlighted in the first three sons. Reuben, Simeon, and Levi. Reuben was given the place of honor because he was the firstborn. That was incredibly important in that culture. So he should have had the rights. But Reuben forfeited those rights. Not just of blessing, not just of having the wealth, not just of being the leader of the family, but the blessings of being the one that God blessed as a conduit. In other words... If you are a leader in God's economy, you are primarily meant to bless other people. And Reuben did the opposite. Reuben sought his own good. Reuben sought his own pleasure. And not only did he forfeit wealth, a place of preeminent leadership, but he lost his opportunity to bless. And why was this? Because he gave in to lust. He had an immoral sexual relationship with his stepmother, Bilhah, who was one of the handmaidens given to Laban's daughters. He went into her and, at least for a time, had a sexual affair with her. Of course, Jacob learned about this, and because of Reuben's sinful, lustful actions, he lost his place of preeminence. Simeon and Levi performed another sin. Theirs was not one of lustful sexual sin. Theirs was one of anger. Theirs was one of treachery and wrath. Their sister Dinah had been defiled by a pagan, and in wrath, out of revenge to get retribution, they went in through a tricky scheme and they killed an entire city. Not only this, according to this text, though it wasn't recorded earlier, they not only killed the men of the city, but they also abused the animals that they took as spoil. Jacob records this little detail here in verse 6, that they hamstrung oxen, probably to highlight the fact that they were so controlled by wrath that they were out of control. So if Reuben was controlled by his lusts, Simeon and Levi were controlled by their wrath. So Jacob's first son, massive failure because of uncontrolled lust. His next two sons, Simeon and Levi, lost their place of blessing because they were controlled by their anger. Why are people like that? Israel would have wanted to know, why do we do the things that we do? Why do we give in to our sexual lusts? Why is it so powerful? Why is something that's good, like sex, something that is so alluring and often so very damaging? Israel would have wanted to know, why do I often give in to my anger? Why am I controlled by anger? It was right for Simeon and Levi 
to be very angry for what had happened to their sister, for what had been done to her. But in taking matters into their own hands in the way that they did, they went far too far, controlled by anger. Righteous anger turned into treachery. Israel would have wanted to know from Moses, why, why are we like this? And even if they weren't asking the questions in their hearts, why are we like this? Moses wanted them to know. And these things have been written down so that we might know and be warned. There are some idols out there, some things that compete for our affections that we know are just absolutely wrong. There are some things that are more subtle, particularly because, at least at the base of them, they can be kind of good, like sex. Sex is a gift that God has given to His people for pleasure and for procreation, but it is not meant to be the ultimate good. It is not meant to be worshipped. What happened in the fall is that even good things became somewhat twisted, or at least the way that we look at them, the way that we use them becomes twisted. Reuben did that with his sexual lust. It was right for Simeon and Levi to be angry at sin. God hates sin, but it is not right to be treacherous. The, the level of retribution that they sought was not in keeping with the sin against their sister. And what they did was absolutely wrong and evil. And because of this, they lost their blessings. Later on, as you go through the history of Israel, you find that these three sons who grow into three tribes lose their blessings. They will not be the tribes that have the preeminence. There are ripple effects to their sin. This may be a bit of a silly analogy, but it's one perhaps that you can get into your head and think about, and that is that whenever you sin, it's like throwing a rock in a pond. When I was a child, I spent a good amount of time in Kentucky with my grandparents. My grandfather had a farm down there, and he had three ponds on his property. He had about 100 acres, and down there, you put ponds on your property to you know, give your cattle drink and so forth. But my grandfather, who had a bunch of grandchildren, put fish in them. And so we would go down to the ponds and we would fish. But we'd also throw rocks, something fun for children to do. And I can see in my head even now, being down in Kentucky and throwing rocks in the water, how when it makes a big plunk, especially the bigger rocks, that ripples come out from it. And that has stuck with me as I have learned to think about sin and its effects. Every time we sin, we throw a rock in the water. But it doesn't just sink down, it leaves ripple effects. And what's tragic about our sin is that it takes a long time, often, for the ripples to come to shore. And sometimes the effect of the sin is so great that the ripples keep coming for a long, long time. The bigger the sin, the bigger the consequences. And Reuben not only affected himself, he affected all those who would come after him. Simeon and Levi not only affected themselves, but those who would come after them. In fact, as they will eventually go back into the promised land under Moses and then Joshua's leadership, 
Simeon and Levi don't even get a place to live. You see at the end of verse 7, I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. Simeon's portion of land was within the borders of Judah. Levi, from which the priests came, didn't even have their own land. They had some cities, but they lost out on their blessing. We have effects on those around us. We've seen this already in the story of Abraham and his family. You see this most especially perhaps in Lot. Abraham and Lot have to part company because they're growing so fast. God's blessing them so much that they can't be near each other as they pasture their flocks and so forth. And Lot wants to be closer to an urban area, so he goes down towards Sodom and Gomorrah. Eventually, as he lives in Sodom, the city becomes more and more evil, and his righteous soul, as the Scriptures say to us, is afflicted. But he had such bad leadership, he placed himself and his family in such an evil context, that not only was his own heart affected, his daughters and their husbands and his own wife grew in their affections for evil things, and they were forever affected by it. I say to you dads, to husbands, to grandfathers, to you men who are leaders, there is a special burden placed upon us. There is a privilege to be a leader, but those over whom we are given leadership are watching us, our sons, our daughters, our wives, our grandchildren, our friends, people in our church family. We have an opportunity to bless, to point people toward the great God, that they will have affections for Him and be blessed by Him, or we have the opportunity to do the opposite. Men, in one way or another, we are always leading. We're either leading well or we're leading poorly. Unless you think I'm being patriarchal here, this is true for men and women as well. But I do want to highlight the fact that as Jacob speaks here to his sons, They had a responsibility, a mantle that had been placed upon them for leadership, not just for their their own present families, but for those who would come after them. Through sinful choices, there were deep and lasting consequences brought about. Sin is like a power. We see this earlier on in Genesis chapter 4, if you'd like to turn there with me. After the fall of Adam and Eve, of course, their posterity, their children, would be affected. In Genesis chapter 4, verses 1 through 7, you know the story of Cain and Abel. God is pleased with the sacrifice of Abel because he gave his best. He's displeased with the sacrifice of Cain because he gave some of the, the scraps, not his best. Abel made Cain jealous, and Cain was angry with his brother. Verse 4 says, the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry and his face fell. He became frustrated and upset. God says to him, why are you angry? Why is your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? If you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Moses records these words of the Lord to Cain, demonstrating to us that sin is like a predator seeking to pounce upon us. 
Reuben did not have eyes to see that sexual lust, unchecked, was ready to pounce. And when it did, it affected him and his posterity for generations. Simeon and Levi were not aware, did not pay attention, that their treachery was ready to pounce on them and through them to other people, and they affected themselves and those around them. Sin brings deep and lasting consequences. Most of us have experienced that. Most of us have committed certain sins in our lifetime that often we pay for many, many years later. That's tragic, and that's hard. It's bitter, and the aftertaste is not worth it. And so I say to you, if there are sins that you are being tempted toward now, if there are affections that are crowding into your heart and into your mind, brothers and sisters, please be aware that it is like a powerful predator And though it doesn't seem like there is danger ahead, your very life may hang in the balance. And not only yours, but those over whom you have charge or those to whom you have responsibility. Secret sin will destroy you and it will destroy those around you. And ultimately, there is no secret sin, for if it's not known here, it will be known in eternity. And it's interesting here at the end, that Jacob is not afraid to speak the truth. You know how it is for us, us Midwesterners. We're we're relatively pleasant people. We're not as pretentious as the South, and forgive me if I just offended you. I lived there for 10 years, so I can speak with some knowledge. The South was too pretentious for me. People pretended to be nice, and then often they would curse you as you walked away. The Northeast is too blunt for me. I can't live there. The West Coast is, you know, too laissez-faire for me. I'm a Midwesterner. I get it here. And we're basically pleasant. What's interesting about basically pleasant people is we never like to say things that are basically hard to say. But Jacob wasn't afraid to do that. It's interesting here at the end. We know at the end of the text that he is going to die. He gathers up his feet onto the bed and then he dies. Why does Jacob speak these hard words at the end? You'd think that he would just say nice things, pleasant things. But Jacob was worried for his sons. He cared about them deeply. He loved all of them, even the ones who were were terrible failures. And, And not all their sins are highlighted here, but the ones that really stuck out. He wanted them to understand who they were and what might be coming because of the effects of their sin. And so I say to you, though it's not fun to talk about sin, though we would rather talk about more pleasant things, and we will in just a moment, I do want to warn you today. Moses wanted the people of Israel to be warned, to understand themselves, to see what might be coming. And so I say to you, sin is nothing to be trifled with. It is not to be taken lightly. And because I love you, I want to say to you today, Be careful, be aware. Sin destroys. But that is not the primary point of this text. The primary point of this text is this second idea. That is, 
that God's grace overcomes the power and consequences of sin. Moses recorded the words of Jacob to each son because each son had something to hear. And truly, as we look at this text, we find that sin is deep, powerful, and its consequences are severe. But there's highlight in this text, not just to Reuben, Simeon, and Levi, but primarily to Judah and to Joseph. Grace overcomes sin. Grace undoes the power of sin. Grace transforms. We see this, first of all, with Judah. And this is the most significant thing in this text for us as God's people. Moses wanted the people of Israel to know that eventually the tribe of Judah would be the one that would have the rule. We know this later on because of the man named David. Turn with me, if you don't mind, to 2 Samuel 7. Second Samuel 7, of course, comes long after Moses' death, but he wanted to prepare the people who were going into the land of promise that eventually there would be kings, and they would come from the tribe of Judah. God makes a covenant with a man named David. The first king of Israel was a Benjamite named Saul. But then eventually, because God preferred David and kept his promises to Judah, he gives the kingdom to David and to David's family. In 2 Samuel 7, verse 1, the Bible records, When the king lived in his house and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. That same night the word of the Lord came to Nathan, Go and tell my servant David, Thus says the Lord, Would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day. But I have been moving about in a tent from my dwelling. In all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel, whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. Verse 14, I will be to him a father because he promises David children and posterity. He shall be to me a son. This is initially fulfilled in Solomon and later on in their offspring. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. My steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words and in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. A very important text where the kingdom is promised to the family of David who came from the tribe of Judah. Back in Genesis chapter 49, you'll notice that Jacob says to Judah in verse 10, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience 
of the peoples. Now, if you remember the story of Judah, Judah sinned in a way, frankly, that was no less offensive, no less um, horrible than his brothers, Reuben, Simeon, and Levi. Judah had a sexual relationship with his own daughter-in-law. If you try to weigh these things in the balance, which is worse, Reuben having a sexual relationship with his stepmother, Simeon and Levi killing, murdering, even abusing animals, or Judah having a sexual relationship with his daughter-in-law, which is worse? Well, how do you choose? So why is it, in verses 8 through 12, that one who was also evil gets blessing? If you're really paying attention and you're really being honest, that doesn't make a lot of sense. But here's the point. The point is that all of us are sinners, and all of us will do such treacherous, evil, horrible things that we will destroy ourselves and those around us. But there's hope because of grace. Only God can transform a heart Only God can change a family tree. What did Judah deserve? Judah deserved words of cursing like his three older brothers got. But what did he get instead? Judah got grace. As you're sitting here today, what do you deserve? What do I deserve? We deserve deserve sin and all of its consequences. And we deserve wrath because of it. But if you're sitting here today and you're a worshiper of the one true God and you're trusting in Jesus as your Savior, you are not here because you sought it. You are not here because you chose God. You are not here because you're more religious or more moral. You are here sheerly by grace. Judah is given words of promise because of sheer grace. Grace is getting what we don't deserve. What did Reuben deserve? Punishment. Consequences. Simeon and Levi? Punishment. Consequences. Judah? Punishment. Consequences. What did he get instead? Blessing. Why? Because that's how God works. And so I say to you, if you're sitting here today and you're a worshiper of the one true God, and though your heart is often drawn after bad affections, you're being changed, guess what? You are a trophy of grace. And grace is getting what we don't deserve. And not only would Judah be transformed, his posterity would be transformed. David the king would be given great and precious promises that he himself and those who would come after him would possess the throne of rulership in Israel. But the problem is, if we're being honest, that David was a lot like Judah. What is Judah most known for, at least in a sinful sense? Having a sexual relationship with his daughter-in-law. Not something you want on your CV, right? David is known for great exploits, but David is often remembered for his sexual son with Bathsheba. 
And what about his son Solomon? Had a thousand wives and concubines. Not something you want to be known for. And by and large, their sons after them were known for similar sins. So, this promise that God gives to Judah here in Genesis 49, that that good will come, that a scepter will not depart from him, and eventually, seemingly, a person will come, the end of verse 10, who will be better than Judah, better than David, better than Solomon. And that's why we have Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 17. You can turn there with me. There is no detail in the Bible that is wasted. Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 17 is no exception. The apostle records for us, this is the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. The son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham, verse 2, was the father of Isaac. Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, immoral relationship. Why does God highlight this through the pen of Matthew? To show us sin and its consequences, but how grace overcomes. David would be a hopeful bright spot, for the most part, for the people of Israel. But he was imperfect And his sons were even more imperfect. In Moses' prophecy, as he writes it down, because Jacob originally gave it, makes you wonder, when will the final one come? The one who will bring hope and full restoration. But there is one coming from the tribe of Judah who will make all things new. Turn with me please to Revelation 5. Promises are given to Judah and the tribe, but even the best of them would be a big disappointment. But out of the line of Judah, Jesus would come. He would live a perfect life. He would die a substitutionary death for his people. He would be raised to complete an eternal victory in life. And one day he will come and he will make all things new. Revelation 5, the Apostle John records, I saw on the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals, and I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? This is basically a deed to the earth. No one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. For centuries and for millennia, The people of God, the image bearers, in particular, his worshipers, are wondering, when will all the bad things come untrue? We weep, we wait, we groan. But verse 5, one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. Verse 9, a new song is sung in heaven. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain. By your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on earth. Why do we groan? 
because we want restoration. Jacobly prophetically tells his adultering son that restoration will come through him. But Judah's imperfect. And even the best of his line, they were imperfect. But eventually one would come to whom tribute would be given. The Son of God, Son of Man, worthy to receive the deed of the earth, worthy to receive glory and honor and blessing, not just because He's powerful, but because He laid His life down. He stepped into our suffering to undo it. The son of Judah rescued his former forefather. The son of Judah rescues all who will trust Him. The one who took our sin upon Himself. The one who ransoms people for God. This is the final promise to Judah. That the Messiah would come, Jesus Christ, our Savior and our King. And we hope in Him. And we wait for Him even now. Because brothers and sisters, He's making all things new. Sin brings deep and lasting consequences. And God's grace overcomes the power and consequences of sin. I was, I was going to take time to not only show from Revelation 49 that God overcomes the consequences of our own sin, but also the sins of others. And that's really highlighted in the prophecy to Joseph. As you find later on in Genesis 49, starting in verse 22, really down through verse 26, that's the point, that God overcomes our, the consequences of our own sin and eventually, of course, the consequences of other sin. I don't have time to do that well today, and I'm finding as I think ahead. So I'm going to pause right here, and I'm going to pick that up again next week. But I do want to leave you with these two major thoughts. I want these to be uh, very clear to you as we walk away from this point in the text today. Be aware of sin's power and allure and fight it. But you can't fight it on your own. Jesus was given to us that we might see sin crouching at the door like a predator. And not only have we overcome sin's penalty, that's why Jesus died to take our penalty, but it's power over us as well. In Reuben, Simeon, and Levi, we see tragic consequences for terrible choices. Judah deserved the same, but Judah's life is highlighted by God's redeeming, electing grace. It's true for his family, because eventually a son would come from him. And through that son, the whole world would be blessed. And therefore, the promises to Abraham are kept. God told Abraham that he would give him a land and a family. And through that family would bless the whole world. And Jacob's words to Judah here stand against the backdrop of sin and its consequences and prove to us that there is hope for us. So I think the primary thing that we should walk away from this text with is the idea that grace is powerful and therefore we should be grateful and thankful. We should be aware, wary of sin, aware of its consequences, but trusting and hoping constantly in Jesus. This week, not long after you leave this room today, 
sin will continue its relentless efforts to master you. But be aware and trust Jesus, the one who has made you new, the one who is making you new. Fight by his grace. Trust in him. When you do sin, repent. And because he pleads with the Father and the Father accepts him, you will be forgiven. Hope in him. Live for his glory. Wait on him. He is making all things new, including us, and we can trust him. So sin brings deep and lasting consequences, and we should be warned. But against the backdrop of this dark sin and its effects, we find that God's grace overcomes, not because we deserve it, because God is just good. We should be thankful and grateful and hopeful. Let's pray.